Hello, listeners. Matt here. Hey, are you Pottern Family? Go on Twitter and search the hashtag Pottern Family or follow at Pottern Family to find a bevy of great podcasts, including this one. That's hashtag Pottern Family or at Pottern Family on Twitter. By the way, spoiler alert, this podcast will be talking about the most recent episode of the show that it covers. So if you're not caught up, come back when you are if you don't want to be spoiled. Don't worry, we'll be here waiting. Dedicated to the DC Arrowverse on the CW Network. It's Save This City, a Flash and Arrow podcast. And now here's your host, Matt Murdick. Hello and welcome to Save This City Podcast, episode 22 of the podcast coming to you on a Friday morning, even though I'm kind of recording it on a Thursday morning. Um, Not a whole lot has happened with our shows uh, this last week. We had no new episode of Legends of Tomorrow coming up tonight, or as the time you hear this, uh, last night. There's no new episode 9, and we've only had one episode of Supergirl, so I just thought I'd combine last week's Legend of Tomorrow, Season 1, Episode 8, Night of the Hawk, and Supergirl, Season 1, Episode 16, Falling, into this podcast on a Friday rather than... uh, cutting off the Donald Camille talk that we had last week on Friday. That gave you a full week to listen and digest. Um, Next week, Flash and Arrow do return, so we'll put, I guess, the Monday Supergirl, the Tuesday Flash, and the Wednesday Arrow all together in a single episode next Friday as well. And once Legends comes back... Um, I think we'll be able to at least have one week where we have the two podcasts again. Anyway, uh, again, Legends of Tomorrow Season 1, Episode 8, Night of the Hawk, and Supergirl Season 1, Episode 16, Falling, for this particular podcast. My name is Matt Murdock, and I am from SaveThisCityPodcast.wordpress.com, and that's your one-stop shop. For all things this podcast, like the back episodes of the podcast, you can find the social media links. You can also find contact links and podcatcher links. And if you would take the time to leave me a review on whatever podcatcher app you use, a review of the written kind, that is, um, then I would very much appreciate it. It helps me fine-tune what you're looking for in the coverage of these shows. Contact the podcast with any feedback regarding what I say or about any of the episodes, your own impressions. I would love to include some. I haven't had any feedback this week, so I would love to hear from you. Uh, You can do so by sending an email to savethiscitypodcast at gmail.com, or you can tweet at savethiscitypod, or you can call the listener line, 314-669-1840, and leave a voicemail. And any way that you contact me with any kind of feedback, we'll get you on this podcast. Uh, So do that. Let me hear from you. Let me know that you're out there and that uh, your opinions uh, are being heard by others of our listeners rather than just my opinion. And that should do it for the podcast. So let's get into talking about this first episode, Legends of Tomorrow, which actually aired last week. Season 1, Episode 8, Night of the Hawk, written by Sarah Nicole Jones and Courtney Norris and directed by Joe Dante. Going back to the 50s, I I think, was a great way to explore the social issues that are presented in this episode. You know, like how women were treated in general, uh, racism, LGBT issues. And I guess for the most part, I thought they handled it pretty well. Here's one thing that I, I don't understand, and this is on you sending me feedback. Why didn't any of you write in and yell at me like the last few weeks for forgetting about Sarah and Nissa when I was spouting off about her and Rip? Completely forgot that that Sarah had, her tune had changed since Oliver. I was still thinking of her as being like, you know, uh, still Oliver's past lover rather than remembering that she had that thing with Nyssa for a while. So I'm totally, uh, I'm totally mad at myself for missing that. Um, But uh, of course, her brief fling with this nurse, it it had me really slapping my forehead going, doh. I have to say that it's kind of a relief in the way that I, I 
probably not only don't have to worry about her and Rip, but I don't have to worry about her and Snart either. Um, so maybe we can we can put all of that to bed at any rate. On the other hand, what do you think about the fact that Stein raised the question about liberating the nurse from her like sexual quote unquote repression, but still leaving her behind where society still won't let her express it openly, at least not with acceptance? Is there merit to Stein's thought there? What do you think? Let me know. And what does the fact that Sarah in the same episode says that she's having feelings again, yet we saw her beat one of those hawk mutations pretty fiercely. I mean, like, she hit that thing multiple times after it was already down. What does any of that say about her bloodlust? I mean, did her emotions just make her lose control for a moment? I I really don't want to believe that she killed that transformed kid, but they did make sure to emphasize that she was beaten up on that guy a whole lot more than any other shot she gave any of the other transformed guys. Um, you know, she just had to, to knock Jax out. All she had to do was deliver a single punch or a single swack with the with her sticks. So why beat that guy multiple times? Was that her bloodlust acting up? Was her bloodlust triggered by the fact that she has these emotions uh, for this nurse? Let me know what you think about that. Another one of the more interesting aspects of the meteorite for me wasn't so much what Vandal's savage, his methods to transform Jax and the others was, but I think it made me actually think about Carter and Kendra's original transformation and how that seems to vary from these transformations that we saw here. And I asked questions. Was it because that Kendra and Carter were already dead? When the meteor hit their kingdom and that allowed for their kind of like more aesthetically pleasing and a little less violent versions of the same thing that these kids became. I mean, the show did cite that it was the same nth metal, so there must be some reason why the transformation was different between what happened way back in Egypt 4,000 years ago and, and what happened here with Savage's test subjects. But I don't know why uh, the mutation would be different. And as for Savage himself, you know, he's pretty creepy as usual, I guess. Um, I don't think anyone was surprised by the fact that he knew who Kinder was all along and was just playing the part. I think the show probably just tried a little bit too hard to deflect that thought, which made it out that much more obvious. And I was watching on a DC YouTube uh, release that said that uh, in the comics, Superman is currently fighting Vandal Savage. So if you're into the Vandal Savage character, you might want to check that out. Uh, I wonder how he convinced that cop to work with him, though. I mean, we see by the 70s that he does have a lot of followers. So I guess he has some kind of charisma that's pretty effective, um, evidently on men and women alike. Speaking of the 70s, now, since they've gone back to the 50s, would the Savage of the 70s and the 80s now know who Kendra and some of the team are? Like, especially Ray. He was in he, he was in the 70s episode and in the 80s episode. Savage met him both times. So anything past 1980 would now be hard for them to surprise him at all? Do they have to just keep going further back and further back in time? And each time they fail, does that change the outcome of what happened when they went into the 70s or when they went into the 80s? I don't understand how that works. Or if they're in their own kind of bubble verse of time that um, however they go forward is the way that it plays out as far as they're concerned. I'm just wondering how it plays out for the rest of the world, I guess. And that's another one of those time travel headaches that I'm still having trouble with. Sorry about that, but I'm just dumb. So you have to write in and correct me. And Kendra and Ray, they're dealing with the whole racial thing. That that was good. For instance, her comment about liking cities that were backward to that realtor. That was a nice little comeback. Or, or the way that they both put down the lady at the party about the champagne. I mean, they use them for that kind of aspect of it, but their the own dynamic between Ray and Kendra themselves was a lot better. 
first of all, um, them working as a team while Ray was in the Adam suit, and it's good to see the Adam suit being used properly again, and getting the dagger was great, but then you have that argument about what to do with the dagger. That was pretty interesting, too, and in the end, they really kind of both admit to being wrong about the situation from certain points of view, and then they seal it with a handshake and a kiss, I felt like that that was pretty important. I mean, though I I can't say it won't really be a dynamic that Savage or any other foe that these guys encounter, if they know about Ray's investment in Kendra or Kendra's investment in Ray, that could compromise them in some way. Uh, an enemy could might be able to exploit that in the future. Still, I, I know that you all know that I'm pretty much anti-lovey-dovey bullshit for the most part. But I'm actually finding myself kind of okay with this relationship um, because it could be used in that way to exploit uh, the team or, or to make the team more vulnerable. The only fear that I do have is that you still have the CW love triangle mandate. And I'm worried that that's going to ring true at some point if the team ever finds another reincarnated Carter. Uh, I could actually see the show doing that, unfortunately. But then again, that gives a raise to another question. I mean, since Kendra is this particular incarnation of Shara, is she capable for falling for another incarnation of Khufu? Let me know what you think about that, too. And uh, Jax, the other African-American, placed back into this, as Stein calls it, idyllic 50s, Jack's his whole line about no one's ever seen anyone dip fries in their milkshake before. Uh, that was one of the best deflections of a race discussion ever on TV, I think. And calling that one punk at the counter, uh, he called him Biff. That was pretty perfect and a nice Back to the Future reference, which seems appropriate for a time travel show. And they, they really poured it on this time. I think they did the, the whole girl being forward, uh, Betty being forward with Jax. I think that was uh, a Marty McFly thing. And of course the enchantment of the sea dance, essentially Jax was Marty McFly in this episode, at least until he got transformed. And I guess that if you were going to do a whole bunch of back to the future references, then the fifties would be the place to do it. Despite what happened to Jax with the whole transformation thing, um, up until that point, he was pretty good in this episode. And, and, then at the end, he was good, too. You know, the whole thing about getting a new car for Betty. I guess he got to use his mechanic skills again. And The only thing I wonder is, Betty, will will she ever say anything to anyone about being aboard the Wave Rider uh, and being treated by Gideon? Um, will, will she be able to keep that secret? Although we might see Betty again in this next episode because uh, she would be the only contact that Ray or Kendra or Sarah... I think would have in common um, simply because uh, we know that Sarah knows about Betty, but I I don't know if Ray and Kendra do, but at least Sarah knows about Betty. And of course, Sarah knows about the nurse, but Ray and Kendra don't know about her. I don't guess. So uh, who do they turn to now that they're stuck in the fifties? Anyway, back to Jack's real quick with, with all the questioning that he did about Rory to snart, uh, I'm kind of glad that he was at least able to come to some kind of a peace treaty uh, with the guy because it looks like they're going to have to work closely with Rip and Stein in this next episode given the situation with Kronos being aboard the ship. And while we're at it, uh, let's talk about snart. Jack's, you know, making peace with his action about Roy, that was nice, and as was Stein calling him a hero. Of course, the best part was him kind of playing it all down also. But they really didn't answer what happened to Rory. They made sure to ask the question and to allude to possible answers, but they did not answer it. And that's one of those old TV tricks of dragging that out for a later reveal. I'm not a big fan of an overt, you know, there is an answer, but you have to wait for it kind of mystery. I I like the building mysteries, the kind of thing like that you get in a flash or whatever. Um, But I, I will say that, you know, as long as it pays off well, I don't mind waiting for the answer this time around because it is a good yes or no question. Did 
snart kill Roy? And, and what do you think that answer is? I mean, personally, as I said in the prior podcast, I don't think that he did. I think he shot past him. But a lot of the team seems to be under the impression that he killed him. Most important to me, you know, whatever I think doesn't really matter as much as what you think. So be sure to let me know. Now, Rip, he was kind of in the background of this episode. His turn, I guess. You know, everybody's got to be in the background uh, at some point, because to me, they just don't have enough to give everybody something really important to do in any one particular episode. But I, I will say this particular episode, they did involve most of the people in some form of action or, or some form of thought. Um, they did better with this episode than they had in the past. Maybe they're starting to find their stride with that. But like I said, Rip didn't have too much to do. Of course, Arthur Darvel got to sport an American accent. That was kind of a nice touch. Why he hasn't done that before, I'm not sure. Uh, And I'm not even sure that his American accent was all that convincing. But I think it was meant to be that way. So it's not really a criticism. I'm just kind of laughing at it. And then you have Stein's whole 50s nostalgia. And I actually have to say that that was kind of infuriating for me. Because, I mean, I'm glad that Sarah did get a couple of opportunities to put him in his place. As did Jack's. But I found it a little infuriating because I don't think that Stein is a racist or sexist or anything like that. I did find it troubling that he didn't seem as disturbed by all of it as much as the rest of the team was. They really made a stark uh, contrast as to how other people were reacting to the place as opposed to him. And, you know, I guess if he, I guess more or less was a child, maybe in the mid to late 50s, and then went to college in the 70s, it, it might be possible that it's just tied to his childhood. And, and of course, he wouldn't have, he would have been probably pretty oblivious to any of these kind of social issues that they're having to address in the episode. But I just, I found it infuriating that they would even give Stein that perspective uh, was the thing, because I always think of Stein, he's a scientist, he's an open-minded guy. Well, I guess for the most part, he can be kind of closed-minded when it comes to his arrogance or his opinion about what is right or wrong. But I I don't think that that would be the case here. So I just found it a little bit weird. uh, And um, it made me kind of mad, the fact that they they tried to just basically make Stein into a devil's advocate in a kind of indirect kind of way. That didn't really work for me. And then you have a question of the ending here, because you have Cronus returning, and, and Sarah and Kendra and Ray are left behind. Do we assume that Savage is still around? Or will he have retreated to restart again? Because I, I don't think that Ray's blast killed him, where he would have to, you know, reincarnate or whatever. So I, I think it'll be interesting to see how they, they play out the rest of this 50s side of the story, um, whether Savage is there or not, or who Sarah and Ray and Kendra reach out to. And the big thing, of course, is that they are all extremely vulnerable if Savage is still around, I would think. And as for the rest of the crew on the ship, I mean, the last words we heard was Rip was saying to retreat to the jump ship. But we only saw the main wave rider take off. So is Cronus in control of the main wave rider? Did Rip and the others, did they get to the jump ship and leave before Ray and Sarah and Kendra saw the the wave rider take off or was it perhaps that Cronus uh, launched the wave rider to take off before Rip and the others could get off in the jump ship maybe they haven't gotten to the jump ship and Cronus was already taken off I suppose we're gonna have to see what answers lie in that not until March 31st though there are other, I mentioned the Back to the Future references. There were other little references throughout the episode, and I don't know if you care about any of these or pulp culture references or not, but I like it because uh, I'm a fan of Supernatural, and they always do a great job with doing this the pulp culture references. So um, most CW shows actually are, are, are pretty good at throwing in pop culture references. But uh, a couple other ones that came up was the whole Boss Hog for the Dukes of Hazard by Jackson, the Peggy Sue for the Buddy Holly tune by Snart. Um, I don't know if you can throw Man Cave in there uh, by Ray or not. 
and I'm pretty sure that I probably missed a bunch too, but you can point those out to me if you want. I also got a couple little nitpicks before we go on. I mean, that nurse was, what was she working, a double, a triple shift? Heck, the the, the doctor was gone after the afternoon, so <laughs> they really make those nurses work overtime. That actually seems less plausible to me than the fact that the writers just needed her at that asylum all day and night, you know, uh, so that she could be there for the stuff with Sarah whenever the stuff with Sarah was supposed to happen and how that related to everybody else's actions. Uh, to be perfectly honest, it just seemed like a convenience that she would happen to be working every single shift that they were at that hospital. Here, here's another little nitpick. All that cop did was knock Jack's unconscious. So shouldn't Gideon be able to track Jax's biosignature all the way to the place that he w- was taken to before his transformation? I mean, his biosignature should still be traceable all the way to the asylum, right? That didn't make a whole lot of sense. And finally, how does a syringe draw something out of a rock exclusively, you know, to create that kind of transformation? Now, if you'd have had Savage saying that it was pulverized meteorite and and it was kind of like an extract of that mixed with a saline solution, uh, then I would have been fine with it. But just sticking a needle into a rock, the needle's going to (laughs) break. It just didn't make any sense to me at all. I don't know. Maybe it's something to do with the fact maybe nth metal is softer than we think. I don't know. And this last one that I have is more of a question than actually a nitpick. We saw Kendra put the dagger in her purse, and yet Savage has it in his hands just a couple of minutes later. And when he took her purse, um, they showed him, the camera followed him putting it down, and then he was away from it. So how did he get the dagger? That's a big question that I have, is how did he get the dagger? Was he able to just snatch it so quick that we didn't see it on camera? Um, Is he just that good of a, a pickpocket? Or was some kind of magic used to draw that dagger from inside the purse to his hand? I wonder if uh, if that's not the case. And I guess that's all I've got on the episode. So overall, you know, you have that cliffhanger ending that will require us again waiting until the end of March to get any kind of resolution. I thought this episode was actually pretty good. Uh, there were lots of social issues explored. And while I wasn't really thrilled about having... Yet another convenient timing of of Savage and Kronos in the same episode. Um, I still enjoyed this app much better than the the Russian apps. Um, I think I'm going to go like 8.4 or so on the 10 scale. Uh, With the caveat that depending on how this particular two-parter resolves uh, might change my rating one way or the other as we go along. We'll just have to see. So with uh, Legends out of the way, uh, and I'm sure you've heard other podcasts talk about it, you know, for nearly two or nearly a week now, so you're probably tired of hearing about that particular episode. Uh, Let's move on to the newest episode of Supergirl. Again, that's season one, episode 16, Falling, written by Robert Rovner and Jessica Queller, and directed by Larry Tang. I guess is how you say that name, Tang. Um, Sorry, Larry, don't know how to pronounce your name. So, you know, a lot of people, I think, criticize Supergirl because it, out of all of these four shows, seems to be the most predictable. I wouldn't say necessarily the most tropic, but definitely the most predictable in terms of outcome. It doesn't seem like that anything that puts Supergirl down too much lasts more than a single episode. And maybe that would have made this episode better for some people with the Red Kryptonite. But for me, this was a really good episode. And, of course, mostly because being the sap that I am, that any of you regular listeners know me to be anyway, then I'm sure you know why this was a big episode for me. The the sister relationship in these last few episodes, coupled with both of their relationships with John Jones, has just had me getting the feels <laughs> a lot. Uh, and And that has made me actually like this show even more. And I'm going to get to that stuff in a bit, but I also have to say that even the Kara James thing wasn't all that bad for me this week. 
I know, I sound like all of a sudden I'm trumpeting love instead of uh, calling it lovey-dovey bullshit like I normally do. Uh, but I, I don't know. It didn't really bother me that week. I mean, yes, there is some convenient kind of, quote, now with Lucy out of the way, we still have to find the the whole Rachel Ross friends formula. But I, I did actually feel some real emotional weight and, and consequence with this turn of events for, for both of them, much more so than prior episodes. And I really kind of understand where James is at. On this, I mean, I just think that, uh, you know, he acted accordingly. I also love this version of Red Kryptonite. It's not all that much unlike kind of the Superman 3 movie stuff, except for the splitting. But, I mean, the fact that it makes him just vile and, and a lot more sexual and all that other kind of stuff... Um, it reminded me a lot of the, the Superman 3 uh, movie kind of red kryptonite, uh, also because it was manufactured. Um, and, and it really brought out that super dark persona of Kara. And there's really no running from the truth that is within. And I like that concept that, you know, you could do your best to manage it, but unless you embrace it, Head on if it were just to come out of you without you having control of it, um, then that can be very hurtful. And that every human or Kryptonian, I guess, has their dark side. Loved all of that. Another thing that I really loved about the Red Kryptonite in terms of its effect was that the effect actually seemed progressive, like it was getting worse as the episode went along. Maybe she was able to fight it off a little bit at first. I can't really figure out whether it was just that it was a cumulative effect or whether, you know, again, that the effect was there the whole time, but she was doing her best to fight it off and then she couldn't anymore. Um, But with the shots of red kind of increasingly bulging in her veins, um, the veins were getting bigger and everything. That was a nice way to show that the effect on her was getting worse to worse. Plus, even like the cinematography or the lighting really amped up the red color as the episode went on. When you think like when it got pretty much to its worst was when she was in the apartment with Alex and there was a lot of red in that scene. Um, And that was really not so subtle sometimes, but I still felt it was a pretty effective storytelling device using the lighting in that way. And I have to say that Melissa Benoit's performance of what was happening to Carr really sold that progression too. Uh, and I, I honestly probably haven't given that actress a whole lot of credit except for the scenes with the feels. Cause I think she does that very well, but uh, this dark side of Kara, she brought out slowly and it was really good. And the only time it actually seemed a little bit out of place or over the top was the argument with Hank about him coming out at, as John Jones fairly early in the episode, that seemed a little bit too much over the top. Also got to admit that just looking at this dark version of Kara, like, you know, the, the costuming and and the makeup, the way they had Kara choose um, different kinds of dress and all of that uh, when she was in her day job, um, they did a really good job making her look a lot more sexy or, Okay, maybe uh, devilish is the best way to put it. I I really enjoyed that. Um, And uh, there was some nice things to look at if you're a male and you're into girls uh, in in some of those shots. Uh, Melissa looked really good. Just going to say that. Now, as far as everything that happens in this episode, including all of the emotion that this episode made me feel, I think it's kind of easy to blame Maxwell Lord And, of course, you should blame him for the creation of this red kryptonite. But the thing is, is even though that quote-unquote road to hell is paved with good intentions, uh, I did actually feel like his intentions were just as he said. He wasn't planning on using it on Supergirl. It was directed much more towards Nan and the other Kryptons. I don't think he was going to use it intentionally on Kara. I'm also glad that he volunteered that information. They didn't have to hunt him down. And that he helped develop the solution. 
But the damage that was done to Kara was actually far greater than if the stuff had just destroyed Supergirl. I mean, by turning her the way his invention did, he destroyed trust and faith itself. Kara's actions weren't just destructive to the city, but they were so destructive to every relationship that she's cultivated since we've joined this show. And even with the citizens themselves, and, and that could be the biggest foe anyone in her position could face. So I just hope that we don't go instantly back to everyone just forgiving her and moving on next week. They, they need some real consequences to this to continue. I mean, maybe even for the rest of the season in order for this episode to stay as effective or as important as it seems right now. And we'll have to see next week whether the writers keep holding the torch on that and not just use it for her and, and the character she's closest to even, but everyone in the city. I have faith that they will, but we'll, we'll see, I guess. Now let's talk about some of the individual ramifications of, of Kara's transformation. And I guess I'll actually get this one out of the way first because it does trigger a few things in the story. Uh, the letting that alien, whatever it was, go, uh, that alien was really just a tool, and I wasn't impressed by his looks or his powers or anything, and I'm glad it was relegated to a fairly small part, but it did act as a catalyst for a couple of things happening the rest of the episode, because if she doesn't let him go, you don't have the Shaboan story happening, nor do you have... Probably the, the senator coming back, I don't think, uh, so early where John Jones, well, Hank, is forced to go out after Kara himself. Of course, if he didn't go out after Kara himself, then um, Kara would uh, probably have killed Alex. So that's something to think about, too. Let's get back to the Shaboan thing real quick. Yes. She has been awful and cold-hearted and, and mildly evil. And her getting fired because she was going to give the Daily Planet that scoop on, on the alien was fitting justice, I guess. But you have to look deeper when the comic book fans point out that she is Silver Banshee. Up until this point, she was really just kind of an office foe. But Cat did continue to stick up for Supergirl and fired her instead. So you have to ask, is Sibowen already Silver Banshee? And this event will trigger her hate for Supergirl because of getting fired over her. Maybe that'll make her come out of the closet, so to speak. Or is the fact that she's away from the office, will that put her in a position where we see the Silver Banshee's origin story? It could go either way. And I have to say, oddly enough, and maybe it's just because the way that Wynne has reached out to her and everything, uh, and we've seen her actually have some emotion for Wynne. Well, I don't know if it's emotion or not, or if it's just sexual. But anyway, there, there was a moment when Kat fired Shaboan that I actually felt bad for her. And I know I'm probably a complete yutz for feeling that. Uh, I'm just trying to be honest. And... Again, it's a nice, indirect way to explain Shaboan's and, and Silver Banshee's hate for Supergirl. And for really for Kara, too. Even if she never puts it together that they're the same person. At, at, at any rate, they, they've set up a, a Silver Banshee reveal well. And, and good reasoning for her to want to take revenge on Kat or Kara or Supergirl. So... I'm going to be looking forward to seeing Italia Ricci when she comes back as more than just this kind of like snobby, ambitious woman, but as, as a real volatile threat. I'm really looking forward to that now. And I guess let's talk about Kat, uh, since I just mentioned about her firing Shaboan. Now, I, I do want to say this right off the bat, just starting at the top of the episode. I absolutely hate when networks insist on, you know, cross-promoting shows from their own network within episodes of, of one of their other shows. 
And, and, and CBS is one of the biggest perpetrators of that. I hate when they do that. But the one thing that I did like about the Cat Grant talk about Supergirl during that segment was how well it set up every single notion that Kara effectively tears down as the episode goes on. So it was a great setup. I just wish it hadn't been in the trappings of, you know, oh, hey, look, CBS has this show, too. And what Kat's speech sets up is her other address later on in the episode. When Kara threw her off the building, I had no worry that she wouldn't save Kat. But again, the damage done in that moment was worse than actually killing Kat. She destroyed Kat's faith. And that's why Callista Flockhart is so amazing to me. Because really, take a look at those two speeches, the one on the talk, or the one later on that she records where she's condemning Supergirl. There's no real change in attitude or tone, uh, at least to me, or at least not overtly to me. And yet the emotion was so well portrayed because there is that hint of pride in Cat at the beginning. And there is that sense of disappointment in Cat in that speech in the middle. And and part of that was probably due to Blake Neely's score a little bit also. But again, while sometimes I point out that a good film score is necessary to kind of subliminally add weight to a scene, I honestly think that if you didn't have any score at all, you would still feel the weight on Cat to have to condemn Supergirl. And between figuring out that something was wrong with Supergirl... Instantly, when Shabon gave her that footage and then her pep talk to Supergirl at the end, you, you can see that she truly has faith in Supergirl. And it was heartbreaking to see that faith interrupted. And she's probably one of the first, I guess, regular citizens besides Kara's usual crew to maybe not totally forgive her, but at least give Supergirl another chance. And I did find even the the humor stuff that when Kara was changing, you know, Cat was like, oh, uh, you know, you're dressing like an adult. You know, this this side of you is something I've not seen before and I like it to a point. You know, those kind of things. All of that was the cat that I, I love, the cat grant that I love. And you've heard me complain when they abandon that side of Cat before but it seems like now they've got the writers have a good handle on her and um i don't think that Callista flockhart has ever lost the path of this character except when the writers have steered her so far outside of the box that she really can only just go for the ride with it so again great job to Callista flockhart and uh i really like cat a whole lot and in this episode i of course love Alex. I mean, the last few episodes have been so great for Alex's development, in my opinion. And what you find in the end is that Alex (laughs) may be the best sister ever, the best sister that anyone could ever have. You got to give it up to Shiloh Lee because, oh my goodness, she just really helped deliver the feels. Um, And even when it wasn't her that was carrying like the weight of crying or anything this time, I just I felt so bad for Alex as Kara was calling her out on so many things in that apartment scene. That scene was made even more super powerful in the end because of the fact that Alex admits to Kara that she's not completely off base with some of her accusations or that, you know, they need to talk through some of these issues that they have. Not just if some of the things that Kara said about Alex were actually even slightly true, but that Kara had been harboring those kind of feelings as well. All that hurt and and forgiveness between those two in the DEO scene after she had been eradicated, after the red kryptonite had been eradicated, that was just so, so full of feels. And again, I got to give it up to Melissa Benoist. Uh, I think she always does good in the in the feels department. Uh, scenes or in the field scenes department. But the cool thing about this whole thing is, is that if Superman encountered red kryptonite. He doesn't really get as much of a chance to express 
this kind of regret, you know, to anybody. Whereas Kara does. And, and that just was beautiful. And then to have the forgiveness from Alex, more or less, with the idea that they, they do need to work some of this stuff out. But I, I just don't think anything could express how much these women are sisters, even, even if they're not blood related, these girls are totally sisters. And I, I thought that that scene just sealed at home almost as much as the whole scene about Astra and Alex admitting that. And let's think about Alex's journey over the season so far with John Jones going from finding out about their father to hiding his identity and and encouraging John Jones not to reveal himself to finally, you know, here in this episode, she's actually urging him to become a fugitive after, you know, he has to out himself. I mean, think about if John Jones had flown off, she would most likely have been tasked with hunting him down. And you talk about a conflict of interest there. I'm actually willing to bet that Alex probably would have, you know, resigned the DEO rather than, than go after John Jones because they have established such a degree of integrity with Alex, which means that since they have developed such a degree of integrity with Alex, when they flip that at some point, because you know they will, because that's what shows do, they will eventually at some point flip that degree of integrity and that's going to be just a gut punch to us Alex fans. Because right now, with the way Alex is, she's definitely sitting atop my favorites. That doesn't mean that she doesn't have some pretty stiff competition, though, for an ultimate favorite. Cat's always in the running with me. And now, so is Hank slash John Jones. I mean, wow. This character, since his reveal, has just been off the chart for me. And think about the personal sacrifice that he has made, especially in this episode, all because of Kara. You know, his scene near the end there when he was in prison was just full of feels itself when he said that he would spend a thousand years in prison to keep Alex and Kara safe. But the scene that really got me with John Jones this week was him choosing to surrender. I mean, man, that really got me. And it wasn't even so much about the fact that he did that, uh, which was truly noble, don't get me wrong. But then as he's being handcuffed and taken away, those kind of reassuring looks that he was giving Alex. I mean, this guy, how much of a stand-up guy can you be, right? And give it up for David Harwood again. He's sometimes given some really, really over-the-top cheesy things to say on this show. And for some reason, he can sometimes tone it down uh, to make it at least able to just get w- get over with. You know, um, he, he's pretty good at, at getting getting through that crap and, and being able to make you forget about it and not hold it against the episode, or at least for me. But then you give him scenes like this and you get to see how good he actually is as as an actor. And you just have to say how lucky this show is to have him because he's really turned John Jones into a complete hero in the story. Not a mystery, not an oddity, not a backup plan. Um, He is his own hero. And, And yes, that's part of that's due to good writing choices as well. But some of the heroism is completely execution dependent to me. And and Harewood definitely executes spectacularly, in my opinion, anyway. The thing that you have to ask now is that since he is under arrest, house arrest or whatever, uh, what does this mean for the DEO? My best guess, uh, if they're going formulaic, they're going to have some kind of bad good guy, you know, quasi bad good guy, just a guy who does things differently and and not very well and nobody will like him. They'll have him come in and and shake things up around the DEO and that's going to force some kind of conflict between Alex and and Kara to to deal with the internal problems of the DEO even as the forces on the outside are building up. 
I can see that happening because that's formula TV. I hope I'm wrong, but that that's probably what I'll see. Not necessarily Lucy Lane's dad coming back, not General Lane coming back, but somebody like that who uh, really uh, doesn't either doesn't understand the DEO or uh, doesn't care. It's just uh, just you know he's going to do things not by the same kind of book that Hank or, or Alex would do. That would be my guess, rather than just elevating Alex up to the position. I don't know. We'll have to see. And I've got just a couple of little extra notes here, uh, some good and, and some bad. The whole John Jones red kryptonite Kara fight, uh, in terms of the damage to the buildings and, and the the aerial shots, a lot of that reminded me a great deal of the Man of Steel movie and the kind of damage that Superman and Zod were doing when they were fighting. Not the spaceships doing all the damage to the rest of the city, but just the damage that the two of them did themselves um, to buildings and things like that. And I wonder if DC as as an organization or DC television, Warner Brothers in general, I guess I should say, is trying to give everything a little bit of continuity across like both TV and movie franchises. And I think that's fine. Just as long as in both the movie franchise and in the TV franchise, we see some repercussions for that. But otherwise about that, I'll just say that the shots looked good. Didn't have any problem with the visual effects. Um, another point. I, I did like the way that Kara went and acted like the little girl was her friend at the school and that's kind of tropic but I liked it more because it was a great way to demonstrate the loss of faith that the city had in Supergirl because you have that little girl throwing the costume away and you know I think the firehouse banner was supposed to demonstrate the same thing but to me taking a child's faith away seems more impactful than a bunch of guys who Kara literally saved one of their one of their cohorts lives taking down a banner because then the whole thing about faith in Supergirl becomes generational. It's not like when you take a kid to school and they still think Santa Claus is real and some of the kids have learned that Santa Claus is not real that kid will still stick up for Santa Claus until their parents tell, have to tell them, right? But this is total destruction. She doesn't continue to stick up for Supergirl. Instead, she just throws a costume away. That, that was, that was kind of heartbreaking, to be honest, and, and a perfect demonstration of how the city has lost faith in Kara. One other thing, and this is kind of just a little nitpicky, but, or maybe it's just a question. Like Kat, before she gave her address, kind of condemning Supergirl, um, James and Wynn came in and she said to them, now I appreciate that you're trying to cure her. The question that I have is, how would Kat know that anyone was trying to cure Supergirl? I mean, are we to assume that Wynn and James have filled her in? before on this scene and if she knows that when and james have access to the deo would she not want them pursuing that story it, it just didn't see, i it almost felt like that the writers forgot that cat wasn't supposed to know that maxwell lord was trying to cure her or something like that maybe maxwell lord told her i don't know but it just doesn't seem like it it didn't seem contextually appropriate at any rate. And I guess that's all I have for this episode, save for writing it. And it's all pretty terrific to me. As I said, I, I really hate those cross-show promotions within the network. And, and don't get me wrong, I don't categorize that the same as crossover episodes, like within the same universe. I love Arrow and Flash crossovers. I'm sure I'm going to love the Flash Supergirl crossover coming up later this month. It's just I hate when a network dictates to uh, a show, hey, we need you to promote one of our other shows that really has nothing to do with the universe of your show. Um, I hate when when networks do that to good television. But, again, fortunately, that was early on. It was fairly easily dismissed if you managed to just take the context 
of it establishing Cat's belief, and you can just kind of throw the rest out the window. The other drawback that I had was, I, I, again, I didn't care for the alien at all. He was just a tool. But the rest of the episode was really top-notch to me, and boy, oh boy, you know, Mr. Sap over here. I had a lot of feels watching that episode. So I'm actually going to go pretty high on this ep. I think my favorite scene from the whole series so far has been Alex admitting what happened to Astra, you know, uh, her telling Kara the truth. Um, But that doesn't necessarily make that episode better than this one, because I think overall this particular episode hit me a lot more than that episode did. So I'm going to rate this one like an 8.8, I think. Um, I thought it was that good. And I don't have any feedback, so let's fix that this next week. Send me some feedback. What do you think about my thoughts here on this particular show? Um, What do you think about uh, the episodes? What are you looking forward to in Flash and Arrow, which is coming back next week? Um, Again, since there was no Legends episode on St. Patty's Day, and I've already covered this week's Supergirl app, there won't be any up on Tuesday. But we will return next Friday with Flash and Arrow. And uh, I might uh, throw in the Supergirl episode from next Monday as well in there. Just so we can have one podcast a week until all of our shows are back up and running again together. That's going to do it. Remember, if you do have any thoughts, save this city podcast at gmail.com or at save the city pod on Twitter or 314-669-1840. This is Matt. Take care. Find all back episodes and all contact links at savethiscitypodcast.wordpress.com. If you have feedback you can leave a voicemail by calling 314-669-1840 or send email to savethiscitypodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at savethiscitypod. Please leave the podcast a written review on whatever app that you use.